What is crackalackin', Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Damp Valley coming at you with my fantabulous co-host Adam Promol today. I'm just recording a quick intro um, because we recorded. We went sort of deep into the Celtics net series, Pelicans, Suns as well, and also talked about the youngsters showing out in this year's playoffs, specifically Jordan Poole, Tyrese Maxey, and the not-so-young Jalen Brunson. Uh, but we recorded that podcast before the news about Chris Middleton broke, that he has this uh, sprained left MCL and is going to be reevaluated in two weeks, meaning that he's out for this series. If the Bucks make it for round two, maybe most part of that one. Uh, so that's a big blow to them, especially because they lost game two and they almost lost game one after getting out to that huge lead. So I wanted to talk about the impact of that really quickly before we dive into that actual podcast and we will have more on the the Grizzlies Timberwolves in a future podcast that series has been a friggin acid trip and it's been tough to get a grips on but super enjoyable for me specifically anyway and so we are not neglecting them that's just been we talked about it off air a bunch that's been the toughest series for us to sort of wrap our heads around um just sort of looking at the counters the high variance on two teams that like to get out in in transition so it's been a fun one. Minnesota blowing that huge lead. We'll certainly have to test their medal looking ahead to game four, but we will, again, go a little bit more in depth with them on another podcast. So with Middleton and the Bucks, I picked a Bucks sweep. Or no, I think I gave the Bulls a game, which they've already gotten. I think you could easily argue that they, they're going to get at least another one. The Bucks, to me, should still advance, but they're in real danger of, of losing this series. There are, there are things that you can look at correcting that have gone wrong through the first two games. Uh, you know, some of their, you know, Drew Holiday is going to have to shoot better. That's just the thing. And he should eventually. Uh, Giannis, it'd be nice if he shot better as well, especially at the at the free throw line. I'm talking about his jumpers specifically. Uh, if he's going to take threes, which I do think there is value in his uh, just volume overall, you're going to still want him to hit them at a higher clip than, you know, 16.7% hitting, what was he, two of, one of six through his first Two games, not a huge volume, but 58.6% at the foul line is the number that's going to stand out more. Uh, those need to go down at a higher rate. The Bucks, I still think, could probably do a better job of getting out in transition on live balls. Give credit to the Bulls' defense for really hassling them and slowing them down on the catch, especially when you're looking at Chicago after misses. Uh, the Bucks got on the break about 32% of the time for cleaning the glass after missing a sh- uh, after grabbing a defensive rebound during the regular season. That number is down below 26% in this series through two games. You look at some of the other vitals, and it's not like Milwaukee has you know lost the three-point battle. Uh, they're winning the three the free throw battle, but they, they should be winning it by more given the number of free throws that they've taken. Uh, you know, you're looking at even just second chance opportunities, points off turnovers. Like there's no big gap here, just aside from the fact that um the Bulls have done, I think, a much better job of executing their defensive game plan overall. And kudos to Alex Caruso, picked up some big reps against Giannis in Game 2. Uh, the Bucks for the series, and I would hazard a lot of this is from Game 2 specifically as a team. Uh, matchup data is imperfect, but I'm just looking at this as a team. On the possessions in which Alex Caruso is registered as a primary defender um, or partial Defender on Giannis, the Bucks are averaging as a team 0.89 points per possession. That is really friggin' low. And it's a testament to the job I think the Bulls have done kind of throwing Milwaukee 
out of sorts there. And I think you could, you know, make the argument that there's a level of unsustainability to the way that the Bulls are defending, but it's not like they're shooting the lights out from three collectively at the other end or shooting a ton of threes in general. Uh, Zach Levine is just not playing his best basketball right now. And I know he has the knee thing going on, but we've seen him play better. Nikola Vucevic had a really off game one before going off in game two. This has not been, you know, like an necessarily an ideal offensive series for them. Um, it's even been tight for DeMar DeRozan at points. He is, you know, he is yet to make a three. He's 0-4 in the series. Um, Patrick Williams is also 0-4 from three in the series. You have two of those guys who have yet to make threes. They've been, I don't want to say thrown out of their element, but they've even explored some Derek Jones Jr. at the five combinations because of the way that Milwaukee plays, uh, which I, you know, some of those minutes have looked pretty good for them. So kudos to Billy Donovan to for making that adjustment. Um, but I'm just saying that I don't think that the Bulls have played above their head in this series. And that's, you know, maybe defensively, but I think they have the potential to be even better on offense, even though Milwaukee is built um, to gum up a lot of what Chicago does. Uh, That being said, it becomes a lot harder without Chris Middleton and the Bucks should be okay. Defensively. You still have Wesley Matthews. Who's done a lot of heavy lifting there to begin with. You can go with Pat Connaughton though. I think um, they'll probably lean on Grayson Allen Allen more than Pat Connaughton, just given, uh, how incandescent Grayson Allen was at points during the regular season, not to be confused with what's happened in this series where he has just not really played um, a factor whatsoever. He has yet to hit a three. If we're going over players, who have yet to hit a three in this series. So I, I think it's going to impact them. You know, it, it impacts their defense because I just think you're plugging in someone who's worse than Middleton there as well, but it's going to hurt you even more on offense where Middleton is just your second primary ball handler, essentially. And I'm not, you know, Giannis is going to get more front court touches and he has improved his playmaking a lot, but Giannis is not the guy that you want to slow things down and run pick and roll. That is drew and Chris Middleton on this team. Um, We've seen it in crunch time where they want to even go with the two man game with Giannis. You need a drew or Chris Middleton to initiate whatever actions you want to run there. That's not Giannis's game. And Giannis cannot, you know, run actions for Giannis in those situations. Like Giannis is so dangerous in part because of the things that he can do away from the ball or as someone who's not going to get the ball to a little bit later in, in some of the plays. Yes, we want to see Giannis get out and run, but being more realistic when you're slowing things down, you need a Drew Holiday and a Chris Middleton, um, both of them equally. And now Chris Middleton is just gone. And if you're looking, you know, let's just throw the playoffs data out of the equation for now. Like, Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton were one and two respectively in pick and rolls run this season with the Bucks. Five per game for Middleton, 5.9 for Holiday. Giannis was third at 1.8. And so like they're not relying on it as much as other teams, given the way that they play, which is fine. But that's a huge drop off. And so now all of a sudden you're looking at this from the perspective of, oh, shit, are they, is Javon Carter like the guy that they're going to need to run pick and rolls? Because, you know, if George Hill was healthy, which he hasn't been. He's had like one injury after another information on that. Feels like it's been uh, super murky. We already know that he's going to be out for Friday's game. So I guess there's at least that foresight there. That's going to put some real strain on Milwaukee's offense, I think. And so you're going to need to find a way to, yes, there's the element of, okay, well, Grayson Allen should shoot better. Drew Holiday will have um, better games. Uh, maybe Giannis hit more of his three throws. You can get on the break after defensive rebounds a little bit more. There are things that the Bucks can do, but their half, their life in the half court has gotten inherently and substantially more difficult without Chris Middleton, who, 
for all the Chris mid jokes that were being made, he was on the come up when, when he went down with that left MCL sprain. And this is a guy who's had some big, pretty big playoff moments in the past, even predating the bucks as these super duper contender types. I don't know what this does for Milwaukee's long-term ceiling when you're you know, looking beyond this series. Uh, they're, I guess they're probably happy now with the way the bracket ran out. Like this is why you want to avoid the nets so that if you get into this situation, you don't have to worry uh, about being down. You know, you were going up against a team that maybe you thought could go punch for punch with you, at least offensively to begin with, or maybe even exceed your offense, but you lose Chris Middleton and that, you know, going up against Katie and Kyrie down your one star, even with the nets depth being as shallow as it is, that's just the thought process behind landing in this, um, three spot. And now though, you get into the issue of, okay, well, you're either going to face Boston or Brooklyn in round two. Maybe you view that as a better pull than Philly, which is feels fate complete at this point, or I'll just uh, Miami. That also feels fate complete to, to be honest. Uh, but to do that without Chris Middleton and looking at what Boston can just do defensively, the way that they've really just rained hell down on, on KD's life. Uh, you're giving them, if it is Boston, just as an example, like you're allowing them to zero in on Giannis or Drew Holiday even more than you already were. And so I think the next most, like the most important player now who who needs to sort of the cliche of step up Middleton's a- absence, I think it winds up being Grayson Allen, which is a wildly uncomfortable place to be. And I do think it helps a little bit for the Bucks, especially on defense that they have Brooke Lopez uh, but this Middleton absence, I think they're going to feel, and I would still pick them to come out of this series. I did pick them to win in five. I just, they are at a real risk to me of losing this series still. What does work in their favor to reiterate, I do think a lot of the things that they've done wrong are correctable. I don't want to discredit everything the Bulls have done. They've just, the, the energy levels there, that's, a, that's another cliche, just like the effort they're putting in on defense. And I've liked some of the lineup creativity there. And I do think that you can argue that there's a kaboom game to come from a Zach Levine or a DeMar DeRozan still. So interested to see whether the defense can hold up against Milwaukee specifically. I didn't think the Bulls without Lonzo were built very much to uh, defend these guys. And they've done a much better job of that. Again, that's a huge, that's a pretty big transition drop off when you're looking at um, how much Milwaukee does not rely on that in the first place and to keep them out of transition after they're grabbing rebounds uh, to that degree is, and look, 20, 25% of their possessions is still a pretty high clip, but it's, it's noticeably net less than it was in the, the regular season. So that's my view on the Chris Middleton injury. It is huge. Um, really super quickly. We, we talk about Devin Booker as if he won't be playing again versus the Pelicans. We only mentioned games three and four. We recorded just before it came out that he would be, could miss as much as three weeks. Um, so keep that in mind as we're talking about, his loss. I still think the Suns are ultimately fine in that series. I think it boils down to not to dismiss the Pelicans, who I was too dismissive of in our, our preview. Uh, you know, maybe Phoenix can't figure out the second chance opportunity stuff for New Orleans, but I would expect them to do a better job of maybe mirroring minutes of Larry Nance Jr. when he's at the five or just on the floor in general with their front court, uh, where you won't see Javal going up against Larry Nance Jr. if there's no other Pelicans big. On, on the floor in, in those minutes. I also think that you can expect the rest of the team to shoot better from three. Um, David on Twitter, um, four point play uh, at four point play. I believe he had pointed out that Cam Johnson has also just been like mesmerizing when he started. And that's someone who's going to slot right in the starting lineup. I think you get better 
performances from at the four point play. It's at the IV point play. Just so just to be clear on that one. So there's that point on Ken Johnson. I think like, Jake Crowder has to play better in this series at some point. He has been, um, I would say, bad to detrimental to them through the first two games. Maybe, you know, we saw some heightened aggression from Mikael Bridges in, in game two. I just, I think they'll be fine. But if Devin Booker is going to miss three weeks, uh, there's no such thing as, you know, uh, an easy walk through the Western Conference. And maybe you're not afraid of Dallas. Uh, if you don't have Booker and your Phoenix, um, you definitely shouldn't be afraid of Utah at this point. Let's let's be honest. But you're, if you're going to face Dallas and they have Luka back at that point, you're missing Booker for any sort of time. He has carried their offense, or at least and like their shot making specifically. We saw that in game two. Um, that's a huge loss. I still think they get out of this series, though. And so I'm hoping all these guys get healthy. I, fuck injuries forever and ever and ever and ever. You always want to see the best players on the court. It sucks what happened to Scotty Barnes in Toronto as well. Before we dive into the real meat and potatoes of this podcast, the final thing I will say is please remember to rate and review this podcast wherever you consume it if you haven't done so already. If you haven't subscribed, definitely do that. Consider throwing us a subscription permanently if this is your first time listening. Follow us on the YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardware Knox, we will come up. Um, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, all the, um, the handles and the links are in the podcast description, but it's at Hardwood Knox on Twitter, at Hardwood underscore Knox on IG, and at Hardwood Knox on TikTok, join our discord come have some fun with us uh the link is in the podcast description to come hang out let's dive into a lot of nba playoff talk now though we welcome back my fantabulous co-host adam Bromwell. i we should probably start with celtics nets just because that's the freshest in our minds we're recording this like 30 minutes after game two in which brooklyn blue i think they led by as many as 17 yeah i think they scored like negative two in the fourth quarter is that right yeah, look, Kevin Durant had more turnovers than made field goals. He had combined 11 personal fouls and turnovers to four made field goals. Can I just say that I'm I'm like not that surprised. And I'm not talking about Kevin Durant specifically so much as Brooklyn's offensive struggles in general. Because isn't this sort of the natural byproduct of the best offensive team in the NBA going against a, a a super isocentric Brooklyn offense that quite honestly does not seem to be particularly well coached with Steve Nash on the sidelines. And like, yeah, Robert Williams is out and I stand by him as my DPOY leader, even though Marcus smart was, was very deserving in and of itself, but he is more of a luxury than anything else in this particular series, because there isn't that interior pressure from, from Brooklyn. So this all this defense is still set up to thrive against it and just wreak havoc with the switches and the double teams that they can throw at these stars without the shooting around it to bolster the offense. It's like not, nothing about these offensive struggles have really caught me by surprise. And I'm curious if you feel the same way. I mean, it's a little surprising. I Kevin Durant had like a caps off bad game in game two, and that's just not something. It wasn't that great in game one either. Yeah, but it he's definitely missed shots that he would normally hit, but I've never seen a defense impact him like this. And look, Kyrie in game two, after a mesmerizing game one performance, he was bad in game two for Brooklyn as well. And you do get, look, the math is going to start to get you there because you're supporting cast. Okay, you have Goran Dragic. Like, you can only lean on some of these guys so much. There's also certain lineups. Yeah, Boston might try and get away with a little too much Daniel Tice. 
But if you're going to try and play bigs against some of Boston's other lineups, like that's not going to, that has not worked out as well for the Nets either. And also it's like their offense in the aggregate has not been doom and gloom, but you talk about it being ISO and it's just, you look at the fourth quarter of game two specifically when Boston is driving, there's like an unpredictability of, are they going to kick? Is there going to be like an extra three passes after that kick? And with Brooklyn, it's like, Oh, Kyrie Irving's driving. He's going to shoot it. Or Kevin Durant's going to bail out and he's going to shoot it. And there's like this, that absence of improvisation, I get, or the lack of just creativity offensively in the right. fourth quarter has really come back to bite them. And I was impressed for a good chunk of the game, definitely in the first half, at actually how physical the Nets were defending. And I, I give Boston all the kudos in the world. There are two guys on Kevin Durant at basically all times in this series, it feels like. Um, but I do wonder, part of me is just like Steve Nash said in December that the minutes Kevin Durant was playing were dangerous, unsafe, and untenable. And Kevin Durant, I think, got injured after that. He's been averaging like basically 40 minutes for more than a month or over the past month now. And part of me just wonders, like between him and Kyrie playing all these minutes and look for Kyrie, take this as a joke or a troll or a pot shot, but like you go from playing like once or twice a week or even not at all to now having to play sort of every other day. I mean, you're locking these heavy minutes. He was also fasting for Ramadan. He broke his fast in the middle of the game. And I just imagine that has to be super taxing on his body as well. And part of me just wonders like um, if the lack of depth of the Nets roster roster is starting to catch up with them and it is, but to not see them counter with like any sort of fourth quarter creativity. And it's look at the last possession of game one. People were like, Kyrie and Katie need to trust their teammates more. And it's kind of like, yes, but they're not like, that's just, that's how the nets have played is they're going to run the ball through their superstars. And if those guys are tired or there's not calls for them to do something a little bit more creative than attack themselves, what else are you supposed to do? I give most of the credit to Boston. I want to be clear, but I'm just wondering how much fatigue and then just the, the lack of innovation offensively, which can happen when you have superstars. I want to make that clear. Right. Like you can fall into the low of leaning on them to create something from nothing too much. The, fir- the last possession for each team in game one, I feel like that's just the perfect microcosm of the series as a whole. Because we saw Kyrie dribble, dribble the ball into a double team, couldn't get open, kept trying to dribble his way open. It didn't work, forced up a shot. It didn't work. Then on the other end, Boston's kind of in a scramble drill. Jalen Brown kicks it to Marcus Smart, who turns down a pretty decent look considering the situation and the chance to win the game there to find Jason Tatum for that ridiculously impressive spinning layup. It's it's one team trying to do it all by itself, and it's the other team working as an actual team. Often during the series, during the first two games, it's felt like Brooklyn is – trying to set a new record for the most possessions without a single pass in playoff history. I have no idea how to track that or how to find what the record is, but it, it, it might, might be Brooklyn her, by the end of it. Utah might be giving them a run for their money too, with all the one pass possessions that they've had versus Dallas. Um, it's look, Boston, th- their defense is hellfire. And in game two specifically to, to rally, like Jason Tatum, not even having like doesn't have the best offensive game, but he was just he was fantastic defensively. Uh, that team, Al Horford, before he fouled out, like he made a lot of big plays at that end. They've been able to force Kevin Durant into tough decisions, tough shots, into losing the ball. It's just something I've never seen happen, at least mm-hmm. that I can recall immediately right now to Kevin Durant. And 
uh, you know, this isn't, this will definitely be a tightly contested if it is a Celtics in five type of series. I did predict the Celtics in five. I just thought these games wouldn't be as close as they've actually been because of my lack of trust in the Nets there. And just based off because we're discussing this, can you guess what Brooklyn's offensive rating was in the fourth quarter of, of game two? Uh, like 48? No, or 85, which is incredibly low. So uh, it, it, that was a bit of a troll response, but I think a legit guess would have been like the low seventies. It, it feels like they did not deserve to be in the eighties. Uh, and I don't know what you do to change this series. And I touched on this in the mailbag. I'm going to throw it to you though, because now we have the two of mm-hmm. us. If Ben Simmons comes back for, and maybe we'll have the news on this already, but if he comes back by game four, like does he even materially change? I think so because Boston's offense is slow downable and Simmons is Simmons is a game changing defender. And I think that just having that option frees up Durant and Irving to expend more energy on offense and not get so bogged down because ultimately these games have been close, even with them trying to carry just an inordinately large load. They've also both been, on the parquet floors of the TD Garden. And series are not over until a team wins on the road. You know, unless it goes seven, of course. But it does feel like Simmons can move the needle enough, even if he's an, a, an absolute zero on offense, because some other players on Brooklyn have been absolute zeros on offense already, and he's probably not going to be because of his passing and transition game. Here's my thing, is what do you actually expect him to do defensively after not playing for a year? Honestly, just it just I don't know. yeah, I, I mean, I don't I don't think he's going to be like that, that floor roaming, do everything switchable guy. But if you give him a help assignment or ask him to be the double teamer, you know that he's still physically able to recover because this hasn't been like a devastating injury that's kept him from working out or staying in shape throughout the time away. Right. Because to the best of our knowledge. Yeah. Because practice is definitely a good proxy for NBA games or one on zero. No, it's, it's, it's 100% not, but like I, I would expect something out of him defensively. I mean, he's too talented and, and quite simply too long. That would be fair. Now, my concern would actually be on the offensive end. If you get him in transition, fine. And if minutes, you know, I mean, some of the Kevin Durant minutes in game two were a problem for Brooklyn. But like, if you're trying to win the the one star minutes, let's say, you attach Ben Simmons to Kyrie Irving or Kevin Durant, try and get them out in transition. I can't, if you're playing Ben Simmons, I don't know what the pathway is to playing then a big and or Bruce Brown. And that's where things would start to bog down. I guess you can play one or the other because we've seen Bruce Brown play with Nick Claxton or Andre Drummond in this series. But that's something you have to consider as well. And so you're eventually sacrificing or making it. I know Ben Simmons defensively is better than any of the guys I just mentioned, but that's going to be a trade-off that you sort of have to to reconcile here. And I don't believe that he's as close. But I think if you have... I guess the other thing is just let's just say you're willing to surround him with enough shooters. It has to be a minimum of three. You need a minimum of three shooters around Ben Simmons, which is kind of easy to get to with Kyrie or KD. Mm -hmm. 
my question would then be, are you actually putting the ball in his hands ever? Or are you going to, I shouldn't say ever. That's, that's mean. Are you going to cater to the fact that he's better or more effective with the ball? Or are you going to have him do more dunker spot stuff? Are you going to have him be the primary screener, which is a role that I think each of us and many people have called for him to play, but he's never done so extensively. And it's never looked necessarily great when he's done so in small bursts. And so you're able to just come in and do something you've never necessarily had to do um, at least at, at this volume and then do it effectively would be something that I'd be very concerned about. Yeah. I think, I think all of those are valid concerns, but just from a bigger picture perspective, like if we look at what's happened in the first two games, Boston won game one on a scrambling ridiculous sequence that resulted in the first game winning buzzer beater at home in Boston Celtics playoff history. Game two, also at home, Boston won via a, I believe it was a 16-point comeback with an absolute Brooklyn collapse in the fourth quarter and an uncharacteristically poor performance from Kevin Durant. If Simmons gives them anything as the, sheer, as the series shifts home or comes back to Boston in game five, I don't know that it has to be a good fit because ultimately, like, even – a a 50% Ben Simmons trying to integrate himself into a new lineup with entirely new teammates is going to be a defensive upgrade over some of what is joining the two stars on the floor already. So I, I get the schematic questions. I think they're all totally valid concerns that might matter in a different series, but based on what we've seen in this one, like that could be enough to tip the scales already because the margin has been so small in both games so far. Right. I, I just, I don't know how you can ascribe that much value to someone who hasn't played in a year and is not even returning to the But is it before. is it that much value to just be like, you know, if he takes the minutes that are being played by Goran Dragic? I can that's you an upgrade. After he was going, Dragic went 8 of 14 in game two and kept the offense afloat to close. Do you, want, do you want to bet on that continuing? Do I want to bet on it? If you're asking me whether I think Goran Dragic has a better chance of impacting this series than Ben Simmons, I'm going to tell you that I think he has a better really? chance of impacting this series. Than okay. Ben. Okay. I feel like that's – is that a hot take at this point? I don't know. I, don't, I just don't know what you can expect from Ben Simmons offensively at minimum should he come back. Uh, what is the – if you remove Ben Simmons from the equation, do you see anything that the Nets can do to change the outcome of – like game three, game four, just moving forward. Honestly, not really, because I don't, I don't think I, I expect them, the games to continue to be close, but I think Boston has more juice to squeeze on offense than Brooklyn does right now. They're not Brooklyn has shown no in-game adjustments, no between game adjustments to convince me that some strategic masterpiece is coming that pushes the game plan to something beyond let's give the ball to our stars and get out of the way. And there's an answer to that, as we've seen. And there's even just like, I would argue for much of game two, they played above their heads defensively. Yeah. And so that's just like, I I feel like they start to run out of talent pretty quickly after Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And Boston has at least shown that they're uniquely built to impact at least one of them. You know, you can, mm-hmm. like Kyrie had a masterful game one and Kevin Durant struggled. Like maybe it's one of those is more of the norm than both of them 
uh, not having great games. They combined to go eight of 30 from the floor, which is just like considering the hard to win with that. Yeah. So uh, what would be, do you have an adjusted prediction? I had Celtics in five and I'm not going to move off of it now, but like, do you see this? Is it like. I I had Celtics in seven going in and I think I'm on board with you with Celtics in five now. You think, so we both think it's kind of curtains for Brooklyn here. As, as curtains as it can be when it's been so razor thin to this point, I just I see more improvements coming from Boston than I do Brooklyn, the Simmons factor notwithstanding. I would like to see at this point because I don't think they care about Kevin Durant's body clearly. Maybe it's time to try playing without a big for more stretches uh, or any stretches at all, like rather than having Nick Claxton and or Drummond on the court, uh, just – just try it. I mean, and Ben Simmons makes hurt. it easier, obviously, but right for the time being, that might be something I'd try to get weird, but the Nets have not showed. I've seen, I think Kevin Durant closed like one or two games this year as the de facto five next to Bruce Brown, but not a ton. I don't, it's weird to sound so doom and gloom with a team that has Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and just had a double digit lead pretty handily against the Celtics, but man, Boston's defense and just like their ability to keep coming at you. I mean, Jalen Brown mm-hmm. doesn't really have a great game until he gets to the fourth quarter, and then he just absolutely goes off. And the the and motor, Tatum too on offense down the stretch, right? And then the motor that they have on defense not being impacted by how much they're struggling on offense. And that's probably a cliche to say, but there was I think it was I can't remember if it was the third quarter to close the second half at this point. But like Jason Tatum just wasn't touching the ball. Brooklyn did a good job of denying it to him, but he went possessions without getting the ball, and then there he is on defense just still fucking shit up. So this team is scary. And I wrote the Celtics off when they were in their early season play. So I can't be like, oh, I was ahead of them or anything. Even without RW3, they look like a team that could actually come out of these. This defense, I said the word is hellfire. Their defense is hellfire. Couldn't agree more. I think coming out of the East has to be the goal at this point. The Pelican- like nothing, nothing short of that is acceptable, given how well they played acceptable yeah i mean i think it's it's massively disappointing if they lose at any point in in the eastern conference side of the playoffs at this point if they lose to the box is disappointing absolutely that is a hot take why what is because this team has played like the best team in the nba for the second half of the season but you're saying that there's a huge gap then between them. Yeah, dis- I mean, disappointing is relative. I'm not saying like, oh my goodness, we need to blow things up if they don't. But yeah, like there's reason for fans to be disappointed if they're not representing the East, given how how good this team is. Maybe that's hot. I'll stand by it. Fans to be disappointed, it feels like a different framing than the Celtics would be a disappointment. I meant, I meant you more went from of the fans will be disappointed. into third, a third of the coach, like top three of coach of the year voting, just saying the Celtics are going to be a disappointment if they don't come out. Of no, 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 no. It's fans, fans would have a right to be disappointed. Thank you for catching me on the phrasing. That's, and that's fair because I think the, exp- I would, I would the other thing is like Tatum and Brown have played together for a while now. Time to break them up is what, that's what I'm. Yeah. 100%. If they don't win a title, just they both need to leave town. I do agree with you that it's fair to expect that this team could come out of the. No, game. this is this season is not a disappointment for Boston. Okay. Just to be clear, but but yes, given how well this team has played, like it's reasonable. It is to reasonable them to come yes. out of the East if you're. Yes, if you're a that's what I'm trying to say and failing at. That is, uh, we both failed there, but that is that's a perfect segue into Suns Pelicans. Devin Booker, uh, hamstring strain, out games three and four at least. 
that look, the Pelicans aren't going away. They were, I want to point this. Actually, I have, I have, I don't know if this is a classic Dan rant. And I went on a 25 minute Dan rant. I did the solo mailbag. Uh, a few things. When Devin Booker went down, the Suns were actually losing by three. So this is not the Pelicans catching some huge break to that's the only reason they won the game. And I would also like to point out that Zion Williamson is not playing. That is a pretty massive piece to not have on your team. I know the Suns dealt with their own absences during the regular season, Booker, Aiton, Cam Johnson towards the end, CP3 as well. The Pelicans are missing Zion Williamson, who is an all NBA player at full strength. Just let's not forget how good Zion Williamson is. If you want to make fun of how out of shape he was coming into this season, Still feels like a gray area. He's so at the end of the day, you could be like a 40 something guy making fun of a, you know, young adult's weight is just, it's weird. I get he's under a microscope because the NBA they're missing Zion. So they're not getting lucky here. They've already been unlucky by not having him. What do you think this does to change the complexion of the series? Knowing that Devin Booker is not going to be there for two games. At least. I actually, I don't think it changes that much in my head because as good as Booker is, it feels like the Pelicans have overachieved through the first two games where like they're shooting 49.1% on threes as a team. And Phoenix has been a machine while missing pieces before. And I just, I don't expect that to change. I mean, Game two was also a Scott Foster officiated game and that's 14 straight losses for Chris Paul teams in the playoffs with Foster blowing the whistle. So like, that's a factor too. I don't think it was a huge factor in game two. I didn't really feel like it was egregiously officiated or anything, but like there's still that undercurrent. I would like to interject though. Do you have a problem with people making jokes about that? No. Neither do I. Anyone on Twitter who is sort of just policing people making what was clearly a joke, even brands about the Scott Foster record when he's ref or CB3's record in the postseason when Scott Foster the ref, that's fucking funny and shut the hell up. It's like, it's no a demonstrated that. pattern. And also Foster has Tim Donahue ties. So like, yes, you can make those jokes. Yeah, you can. So oh, thank you. I'm just glad that we're on the same page there because I was just. I mean, I think it's a legitimate thing. I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that it was a big factor in game two, to be clear. Like I'm mostly joking here, there, not entirely, but mostly. There was a sentiment on Twitter that it was somehow damaging the game or making perception of the game unfair. And I won't tweet this because I try not to be super combative on Twitter, but like, shut the hell up. Like this is, this, this aspect of stuff is fun. When it's clearly over the top jokes. It's or- better than the incessant complaining about refs that you see in every single playoff series all the time. It's better than talking about the defensive player of the year discourse or the Nikola Jokic shouldn't be the MVP conversation. A lot of, a lot of toxic conversations. CP3 versus Scott Foster debate is more reasonable than any. I apologize for interrupting though. No, no. But I mean like, again, like 49.1% as a team on threes. And it feels like a lot of the role players are overachieving right now. Like we haven't seen that this version of Larry Nance Jr. in years brandon ingram just making a superstar leap all of a sudden against a defense as potent as phoenix's and just nailing one shot after another like he is incapable of missing i mean towards the end of that and game two was just so phenomenally entertaining down the stretch the shot making from both teams on display was just superb and ingram chief among everyone 
just net not even rippling on these difficult turnaround jumpers that he's hitting. So it feels like there's so many things that would have to continue for New Orleans to even have a chance, not to mention that their roster is so heavily comprised of, of players who haven't been here before. You know, Ingram is still in his first postseason series. They're playing three rookies, prominent minutes, prominent roles. That That's tough as a series advances and the adjustments get made, especially with a first-year head coach who's done a great job to this point on the sidelines. Phoenix remains a machine and has a lot of schematic advantages, even without Devin Booker there. So I think these games get tighter. I think that Phoenix actually has to worry a little bit, which might play to its advantage because there there will ultimately be a little bit more urgency than we'd otherwise have seen in a first round series that didn't seem like it was going to be particularly competitive. But I'm not, I, I don't think that we should all of a sudden be writing off the Suns in this first round series, which seems like some people want to do. This could very well end up being a five gamer. Yeah. I, and I talked about this. We probably, I probably dismissed the Pelicans a little too much in our preview by predicting a sweep, uh, which is funny because I was probably early or at least ahead of them than a lot of other people nationally. But I'm just looking at the Suns as like these machines. I New Orleans has blown me away in this series. What are the, you know, and I think there are things that Phoenix can do to where it's offense without Booker uh, was pretty below. It was around below average when he was off the court this season. They still won the minutes when CP3 played without him by, I think, over 10 points per 100 possessions. I'm not too worried about their offense. There's been, I mean, not having your best score and your your best, your second best shot creator is certainly going to be a problem. I just feel like they might have to be a little bit more concerned about the the defensive side of things, where in game two specifically, it felt like the guards weren't getting back in transition as quickly enough. And I was digging in the data on this. They've actually won the minutes that JaVale McGee has played against Larry Nance Jr. in this series, but the Pelicans have won the minutes when they've used Larry Nance Jr. as their de facto five. And I'm just wondering during those stretches, if you need to steer clear completely of JaVale at center and whether it's Aiton, because Aiton is matchup proof. Like Aiton versus Larry Nance Jr. is not a mismatch. Or do you even lean into like, okay, is Tory Craig the five there, or is it a Tory Craig and Jay Crowder uh, combination? Those are things I'm watching for because I think winning certain tweaks or on the margins like that becomes paramount at least for these next two games when you don't have Devin Booker. Agreed. And I, if I'm the Suns, I'm leaning heavily on Aiden for the rest of this series because you force the mismatches and you force the Pelicans to have to play their true bigs as much as they can to try to slow him down. And ultimately like without Devin Booker generating offense, you're leaning as heavily as you can on the Chris Paul pick and roll game. And I I don't think there's an answer to that in this series, especially with the wrinkles, the Suns throw in on their pick and rolls. And they, I I felt like they got away from them sometimes in game two, but like you can't even track unless you go back and well, at least for me, I can't even track everything that's happening on a Phoenix Suns pick and roll because there's so much happening. And like, let's not overlook that in game two, after the Booker injury, that offense was still scorching down the stretch. It was just an execution and shot making masterpiece for both sides. So this, this to me is more about the Phoenix defense turning it up than like, Oh no, where are they going to turn for offense? Because that's not going to be an issue. Yeah, they did have, I was, it felt like it shouldn't have been this high, but they had a 140 
fourth quarter offensive rating against the Pelicans, and it just didn't. Uh, it didn't feel. Or oh, they had a one twenty four offensive rating against the Pelicans. That's, had a one forty. Just to put that in context for any listeners who might not be able to do that, just off the cuff, that's like better than Brooklyn's was in game two. They the the Suns seemed a little bit more human in crunch time. I will when it got down to that. Yeah, I will yeah. say. I will say that much. And I do think that maybe seeing Devin Booker go down mid game, like that impacts how you're going to play. There were shots that, you know, Cam Johnson missed that I feel like he would normally hit. Um, I do just ultimately think you have Chris Paul, as long as he's healthy, you're going to be fine. And as you mentioned, having Aiton and Mikhail Bridges is just, you can quibble about his level of aggression kind of waxing and waning, but like when he, you can put the ball in his hands and it's not, Hey, go run set pick and rolls. But if you're kicking out to him in the corner or just giving him the ball, like in the middle of your set, like he will keep defenders on tilt by putting the ball on the floor. And so there are just counters that there, and even Cam Johnson is probably, if you wanted someone to go generate their shot from scratch. That's where I was going to go. I think there's some scalability to his offense that we haven't seen because we haven't had to. Right. And I would argue you would pick him to do that more than Mikael Bridges since that's not necessarily his style. Uh, It's, I'm just interested to see like kind of what happens with the, the lineups. And I don't know, you know, I guess shout out to Willie Green for sticking with Jackson Hayes to start the game in game two. And that might be, you know, I think that increases the importance of winning some of these games on the margins because like, you're not going to win the rebounding battle. Right. Uh, just they are the Phoenix is I think dead last in uh, opponent offensive rebounding rate for the playoffs right now, which makes sense because they're going up against the Pelicans. And the other thing they mentioned this on the Suns broadcast, which makes a lot of sense is that even when the Pelicans aren't getting their offensive rebounds, there are just bodies around you because they're trying to get offensive rebounds and that's going to then slow down your mode of offensive operation. And my sentiment was to that is, can you do something like maybe try and throw more aggressive outlet passes? And I don't even know if you could do that depending on what size trees are around you when it's happening. Um, So that I think is why it's really important to be like, okay, if Larry Nance Jr. is really, I don't want to say hurting again, the, the Pelicans are plus 1.8 points per 100 possessions with Larry Nance Jr. at center in this series. And it's been uh, longer stretches than I would have anticipated. But that's still, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's the Suns. So I feel like something there, whether it's, can you win the transition battle? Can you limit the second chance points opportunities? Do you need to counter the lineups where Larry Nance Jr. is your, um, excuse me, is, is the center for them? Uh, can you do more things to get after? Like I was a little bit disappointed towards the start of that game uh, with Phoenix's offense. Like not, it felt like they weren't putting Jackson Hayes uh, in enough actions when they were getting into their offense. So like you, those are the things that I'm going to be watching here. If Devin, let's just say Devin Booker doesn't play again this series. What do you think happens? Is this still a son's victory in your eyes? Yeah. At, at the risk of dismissing the Pelicans again, because I, I admit that we did that a little too strongly going into the series. I, and I don't want to discredit how awesome and fun and, and deadly and dangerous this Pelicans team can be and, and will be for years into the future. But it kind of feels like the Booker injury is kind of obfuscating the bigger picture here, which is that like the Pelicans came out with their best shot in game two and pulled off an awesome victory. But I'm not sure they're going to get another one. Like I might, I might still lean Phoenix and five here, even without Booker playing again. And the, the other thing I'll, I'll kind of point out is, I don't know, actually I'll give you a chance to guess over under on the Pelicans three point percentage in this series, 47. 
Well, it's 49.1%. So. All right, you knew that. They are not- well, I've already said it on this episode. It's like you're not even listening to me here. Oh, I must have missed that then. So <laughs> I think you said it twice too. That, I'm yep. like, that you would expect to regress. I, I love questions like that that make me look good, by the way. Like the more of those, the better. Um, you would have to, I mean, Brandon Ingram and CJ McCollum have hit, and this doesn't extend to just the three, but like the shots that Brandon Ingram was hitting in game two were just unfathomably difficult. You have to think, like, oh, Herb Jones and Trey Murphy the third, like, are their shots going to continue to fall? I mean, Trey Murphy was the best. Trey Murphy's might. That shot looks good. Even, I mean, Jose Alvarado having that night of going two for two, is that someone you still expect to, you know, he's actually been more no. reliable off the catch in those situations. So the level, I do think the level of difficulty, even when I feel like there hasn't been a defender close enough to, it's been mostly CJ McCollum after he's run a pick and roll, when I feel like they could have contested a little bit better or defended it better. Mm-hmm they've made the shots inherently difficult. And I feel like that's going to eventually tilt towards the Suns' favor. But I will say the, the window of opportunity is open for the Pelicans because they were going yeah. punch for punch before the Devin Booker injury. And that's what makes this, I think, such a compelling series for these next two games, specifically when Devin Booker is not in. And look, if you're the Suns, let's be honest, if you can split in New Orleans and you open the door for Devin Booker to hopefully come back in game five, that's maybe it's not ideal because you're probably hoping to get some more rest before the second round, but that's like, that's almost ideal at this point because you're missing an all NBA player. That's what Devin, Devin Booker was a top five MVP, MVP candidate for me. He was keeping your offense afloat for much of game two, early in game two. He hadn't scored in the third quarter when he went down. Um, so that is what you're probably hoping to do in this situation. This series though was already interesting and, and infinitely more so. Yep. This is to close. Could you try again? Shut up, Siri. Um, this is to close with this. We both still think the Pelicans are going to uh, lose, but I'm not shutting the door on it. I definitely am not going to be as dismissive of them as I was in our preview. Of the top five players in points per game entering play on Wednesday night, Jalen Brunson, Tyrese Maxey, and Jordan Poole are three, four, five, respectively. Not a development I think many would have seen coming. Of those three, who has most impressed you during the postseason? Poole has. Because Maxi Max Maxi is, is the number two. But to me, it's Poole's ability to seamlessly blend with the Golden State machine in a way that elevates it. Because it feels like he's just learned so much from both Clay Thompson and Stephen Curry to the point that he can like be a reasonable facsimile of either of them on any given possession. So you see him employing ridiculous off-ball movement to generate these open looks and and hit step-back jumpers like Steph. You see him knock down these deep catch-and-shoot threes like Clay, and it works so well. And the the ability to, to thrive in such different looks while still catering to these bigger name stars and upping his defensive chops in the process has been ridiculous. And that's not to take anything away from Maxi, who I think is just like a hair behind. And then Brunson has been fantastic as well. But I think, I think the answer is cool for me. Tyrese, Matt. Yeah. I think it's cool for me too, because of, uh, you already mentioned the mechanisms through which he's, you know, traveling to, uh, as we're, I'm actually not going to talk about that because that'll date the podcast. Well, actually, 
it looks like Toronto's about to go down 3-0. That won't date the podcast. That's a different discussion to have. But I agree with you that it's probably pool. With Brunson, it's almost not fair, but he's just been doing so much of this all season, and a lot of it has been, all right, if you weren't cooking this Jazz defense right now, they're probably right. looking. Still. Sorry, like the, he, the Jazz defense? There's been one? Not on the perimeter or not on rotations, I should say. It might be a better way of framing that. Still, I will say for Brunson, well, to, to wrap it up on pool, he has made 19 shots through the first two games. One of them has come inside the restricted area. One. And finishing is like part of the appeal with him. Yeah. I'm just, it, it impresses me more. Oh, so you are rel- this reliant on the perimeter, I think because of the personnel that's available now. He has an effective field goal percentage of 88.2 right now outside of 24 feet. Decent. Two games, but that's still, that's, that's going to melt your mind. Tyrese Maxey, I think, is probably like one of the five fastest players in the league. Maybe that's hyperbole after watching him in the, the series. It does help, like, the caliber of players he gets to play beside. That's what we probably, why Brunson deserves so much credit, is like he is the 1A or 1B at this point with Spencer Dinwiddie for Dallas's offense without Luka. But on the flip side, he's getting opportunities that the other guys aren't because he is the 1A and 1B for them. That's... Do you think that either of these two other players can be the 1A, 1B in a playoff series? I guess the Nuggets defense with Jordan Poole, that's, you know. I think that Maxi is probably the best candidate to be that unquestioned leader of an offense. Poole does feel like he fits in better as either a co-star or a secondary star because there isn't that constant creation to his game. But I think that the all-around package is still more impressive. Is that fair? That's fair. Uh, I just, I mean, Brunson has done, like, his in-between game has been monstrous against Utah. He's even hit a couple step-back jumpers already in this to series. Quote, to quote some guy from before we started recording, he's going to get put-aid. This yeah, awesome that's, thing. for Jalen Brunson, I'm going to say $18 million is what I'm going to set the over-under at. For I his. think it'll go over. That is incredible in a market where not many teams have that much, so maybe it'll be a sign and trade. Detroit's floating around there with money to spend. Uh, so, and look, he might, I would be against giving it to him if I was a team. Just, I want players to get paid, but I don't think he's on that level of player long-term, but he's making a very difficult case um, against anything that I could say against it. And if, if Luca doesn't play this series, or if Luca returns in game five and the Mavs are up three to one because Jalen Brunson is playing like just out of his mind, spectacular. I, I, I mean, he'll definitely secure the bag in that vein. Tyrese Maxey, though, has been just through and through for Philly. And someone had said this. I can't remember who it was. They said that the Ben Simmons saga was almost a blessing in disguise for Philly because they never would have tapped into this version of Tyrese Maxey if it never happened. And I thought about that, and I'm like, you're right, because he never would have even had a chance to be this level of number three if James Harden wasn't there. Like, the, the, the offense would have looked different. Maybe the Sixers had bigger plans for him. So, and then just getting that time as the Sixers primary point guard was absolutely huge for him. He has yet to miss a shot in the restricted area against the the Raptors as we're recording this. That is absolutely incredible. And if he's going to be playing like this, and I know Tobias Harris had an off game in game three, but if you have Maxie and Harris as your secondary weapons, like really going off and you can say what you want about James Harden in the uh, aggregate of this series, the floor balance still changes for Philly in a great way when he has the ball because of how much attention he is still commanding. And if you have Maxi always capitalizing on that with his speed and his shooting, and then Harris 
every even every other game of Tobias Harris being the quick decision maker that he's by and large been the efficient quick decision maker. Philly went from I said they could come out of the East after the Harden trade to me being basically out on them to now I'm like, well, hmm, they're a team. Can we give a shout out to James Harden too for just altering his play style in a way that's beneficial because it is it's tough for guys who are used to competing for scoring crowns and taking all of the shots to drastically alter the way they play and become a pass first, pass second guy. He's a damn good facilitator and he has embraced that role and it's elevating this offense and kudos to him for being willing to do that on this stage with a new team when he's had playoff flop after playoff flop in the past. That is not an easy thing to do either in terms of actually playing basketball or embracing it mentally. And he's done it in a way that is benefiting Philadelphia. I agree with you. I, the only thing I'm going to add, I'm not trying to be an asshole here. How much of that is he can't be the James Harden that you're referencing because he, there've been moments. And and how many players have been faced with that situation and have tried to push through it anyway, to the detriment of their own team. And I do think Toronto, and I didn't see a good chunk of the the second half of game three because we decided to podcast, uh, but they've made life difficult on him. And yeah, I mean, this is, this is a weird comparison to make, but like one of the reasons that I was so impressed with the totality of Vince Carter's career is that he better than almost anyone I've ever seen embraced the decline from superstardom to stardom to role player status in a way that he consistently elevated his teams, even when it was clear that he was no longer even close to the player that he was in his prime. We're not seeing a drop off of that magnitude for James Harden yet, but it's still a difficult thing to embrace seamlessly. And there has been no like long term step back period pun intended because it's James Harden he has just gone from being the scoring superstar who racks up triple doubles to this new pass first player like that. And it's working. That's hard to do. The final thing I wanted to get to here in relation to the younger guys, how has Jordan Poole's upper trajectory kind of changed how the Warriors look at their attempts to balance the, the future and the present at the same time, because coming in, I think there would have been fans, analysts that said, if they do lose in the second round, because they're not going to lose in the mm-hmm. first round, we know that's not going to happen at this point. There would be a push or a call for them, or maybe even anything less than championship. There'd be a call. Oh, you have to start cashing in some of your younger chips to go out and get a more established player. I'm just hearkening back to the flashes we saw from Jonathan Kaminga during the regular season. Now Poole sort of making this jump. And it feels like sort I of. would. I would, we would have said, I think both of us said long ago that the Warriors were the biggest threat at, at peak. Peak Warriors are the biggest threat to the Suns in the, in the West. Even if the season doesn't end in a championship, I probably would have, before the playoffs started, said the front office is going to push back against the idea that they need to go out and make a consolidation trade because they're so, one, they have those legacy titles in their bank already. Two, they do seem just so confident in their ability to blend rebuilding with competing. Mm-hmm. But now there's like a a certain legitimacy to it that it didn't have before. Where yes, right. been spectacular all season, but the stage on which he's doing it, um, the way that the lineup is killed, which we need a name for it. Uh, so I think it was Rory Brizel on Twitter. I saw I called it tidal wave. I thought that was good. Um, 
I've seen some like really uncreative ones, like Fast Five or something wasn't good. Five for your funeral, if we're willing to uh, extend the the word count on a little bit. But I feel like this has sort of, unless things just turn and go the completely wrong direction from here, uh, there's a level of indication here for the Warriors front office because it turns out that if they have their best players available, they can, in fact, build for the future without torpedoing or, or really even sacrificing the present. And I would expect almost now, in large part because of Poole, but also because of Kaminga, Maybe they still have a ton of faith in Moses Moody and, and James Wiseman, for all I know. Wiseman will play in 2027. <laughs> will it be for the Warriors, though? Probably not. Uh, but Maybe Santa like, Cruz. No matter how... <laughs> no matter how... That's so mean. <laughs> no matter how this season ends now, it feels like the Warriors are just going to keep along this route, and they almost feel like they have every justification to do so. Maybe there is something to that light years thing, after all. Jordan Poole, man, I late, I was late on the Jordan Poole bandwagon. I, I'll fully We should start an appreciation thread. We should. We'll get on that. This was great. Shorter than normal, not as short as we anticipated. We hope you enjoyed bouncing around. As I mentioned on the last podcast, we're probably going to get into some bigger picture stuff throughout the playoffs as well, so we're not just constantly recapping games or series um, and not aging our content uh, very quickly. Please remember to rate and review this podcast if you have not done so already. If you haven't subscribed, this is your first time listening to us, definitely do that. Uh, Follow us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, where I post exclusives on IG and TikTok. All the links are in our podcast description, as well as our Discord. Join that, pop in, have a great conversation. And if you've done all those things, consider referring us to a friend, a family member, random person on the internet who you know likes basketball. Until next time, though, we leave you with a shout-out to the one the only semi-final bound inevitably goat, Frank Nielakino.